And every time I'm on the highway, I feel terrified because there's like lunatics passing me on the mass pike at 100 miles an hour on both sides, just zipping by. Chris. Because there's nothing to stop you. Chris, I have apologized to you several times. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by TikTok. Do you guys do you guys use TikTok? Never. Oh, one of my kids loves TikTok. Exactly, and so do mine. Yeah. I, I don't I don't get it, and I I recognize that I must sound like you know your typical old guy when I say this, but I just don't get the fascination. I, you know, what my daughter loves to do is she, there's these videos of the kids where they like do dances, right? And then they send each other, they're like doing dances to these short clips of songs. And I think that's the way she uses it most, you know, she's 12. Yeah. But I think it's cute. Like they, you know, they're all doing their hand hand gestures and they're waving and they're doing, and it's, you know, it's like 30 seconds and they send it to each other. Yeah. So I don't know. I think the Chinese eat your heart out on yeah, tween, no. tween dances. I, I get it. I do get that. But I, I, I can't see how like people spend hours and hours yeah. on it. But yeah. Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am here with Dr. Chris Gill. Hello, Chris. Hey, Matthew. From the Department of Global Health and with Dr. Jess Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health. Hi, Matt. Hi, Chris. Hey, Jess. And as a reminder to everyone, if you could go over to the Population Health Exchange website and check it out, we've got a lot of really interesting population health learning tools and programs. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. And also, we would definitely love it if you would go out and give us a rating on your podcast app, whether it be iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is that you use. So now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a study on convalescent plasma and COVID-19, something that I'm quite interested in. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about masks and the potential for variolation, which I think is a you know, masks are a bit of a controversial topic, so it'll be fun to get into that. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or just strike our interest. So segment one, we want to talk about an article that looked at the impact of convalescent plasma on COVID, and we'll explain what that is specifically. But this one was published in Nature Medicine, and it was entitled Convalescent Plasma Treatment and Severe COVID-19 a propensity score matched control study. And that propensity score matching is going to come up for a bit. And interestingly enough, it will it will come up in a couple of weeks on our next episode, which was total coincidence. So that should be fun. The first author in this paper was Sean Liu of the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Those guys are so enthusiastic and so and they have such a positive attitude. What? They Go have ahead, Chris. that, Go I, ahead, that I, I can spirit. <laughs> exactly. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, that can-do spirit. <laughs> so I'm curious. I mean, so one thing that was interesting to me was this didn't actually get a ton of press, which really kind of surprised me. The, the one headline that I'll give you was from U.S. News, which said, small study supports donor plasma therapy for severe COVID-19. And maybe it's the first... Part of it, the small study that answers my question, but I was a little surprised not to see more on this. But Jess, can you start off by telling us what this study was about and, and what they did and what they found? Sure. So I thought this was a very interesting study. Like the two of you, I read this one with great interest. It's obviously tremendously timely, but I do think you're right. The lack of attention was probably due to the very small sample size, but you know, that's okay. We're going to, we'll go on mm -hmm. and continue to, to talk about it. So as the title reflects, this is a propensity scored matched case control study looking at the effectiveness of convalescent plasma therapy on patients with severe COVID. So the enrollment here was restricted to, to patients who were very ill with COVID at the Mount Sinai hospital in New York. 
And so convalescent plasma, that is plasma that is harvested from people who have been infected with COVID-19 and antibodies are recovered from the blood of these individuals. And then that is the treatment that is provided to patients to see if giving them basically a dose of antibodies from a patient who successfully recovers helps them recover faster or more com or more completely. Um, and this is actually, you know, I'm sure Chris knows more about the background of using convalescent plasma than I do, but the, the authors note that it, this has been used successfully, this approach of using convalescent plasma has been used successfully in the early stages of figuring out the appropriate treatment for a given infection. And so they note, they note influenza viruses and SARS, original flavor, um, that this also works worked successfully in, in kind of these early phases of a new disease. But they note that it doesn't always work. For example, they noted Ebola was a, a you know, this was tried and did not work with Ebola. So, so that's the hypothesis going in, that if we harvest antibodies through plasma from patients who've recovered from COVID and then treat patients with severe COVID with this plasma, the question is, will they recover faster? And there, the evidence also indicates upfront that the most important effects are noted in patients who are treated early with this convalescent plasma therapy rather than patients who were treated later in their course of disease. And so the authors looked at, and this I just noted is Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. The dates of this study run from patients who were admitted, incoming COVID patients who were screened upon entry from March 24th to April 8th. So this is really early in the pandemic. This is mm -hmm. reflecting, and New York was really going through crisis peak times right at this moment, and Mount Sinai Hospital was really at the center of it. So these were researchers who were coordinating all available resources to try to look at this very astute, kind of very astute, and it required a lot of organization on their part. And so kudos to being able to organize this on the fly as things were really going down in New York at this time. They had two core outcomes in this study. The first was looking at oxygen requirements at day 14. After they, I'll talk a little bit about how they define baseline and the first dosing, but basically 14 days after the case patient was dosed with the plasma and survival by May 1st. So they ended the study by May 1st. And so they were looking to see a two week window with as it related to supplemental oxygen and then um, survival by May 1st. And so incoming COVID patients were screened at Mount Sinai during a two week period from March 24th to April 8th to receive the plasma transfusion under the compassionate use of an investigative new drug clause through the FDA. So they applied to FDA. This is not a standard by any means procedure. This is not an approved procedure, but you could apply for a compassionate use. And they did that for this research trial. 45 patients applied during this period and 39 were approved um, to move forward. Um, the average age of their participants, so the N here is small. This is, as we noted before, this was 39 patients involved in this study who were receiving the plasma. Then there's patients who will be matched to them, as we'll talk about in a minute, as controls. And the average age of the patients was 55. So these might be a little bit younger than some of the severe COVID patients that we have seen later in the pandemic. They're mostly male. Two-thirds of them were male. The majority of them were classified as obese with a mean BMI in their study set of, of a little more than 31. But they had few other comorbidities. So there were, you know, about 20% of them had diabetes, but this was not, this was a a patient population that was experiencing severe COVID, but they were typically, they didn't have a lot of comorbidities other than some had diabetes and overweight. Okay. They were, yes. And so they were categorized, as I said, as severe or immediately life-threatening experiences with COVID. And all of the case patients were receiving supplemental oxygen. So 10% of them were mechanically ventilated and the remaining 90% were receiving either in-room enhanced oxygen or nasal oxygen um, or other sorts of oxygen treatment related treatment. Okay, so these plasma recipients, these 39 plasma recipients, these, these cases, we're gonna be matched using propensity scoring. So I'm sure Matt can talk a lot about propensity scoring and yep, kind of do. the, yeah, like the analytical approaches as to why someone, why a, a team might wanna do that. My, my, my best explanation of propensity scoring is that you are trying in the context of an observational study to mimic some of the elements of a randomized trial when you're not able to conduct a randomized randomized trial. So try to, trying to match cases and controls to a probability of experiencing the outcome at admission. 
So these probabilities are matched. These are the probabilities that are kind of matched between the cases and the controls to try, as an attempt to try to match confounding, to try to match confounders and be able to, to deal with that. Matt, did I describe that in a, in a suitable way? Is there anything you'd want to add to that? Yeah, no, I think you did a very nice job. I will come back to this because I, I think okay. there's probably more to drill down on. And so we can, we can sort of, but keep going with yours. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Phew. Good. All right. So, so they were matched using propensity scores. They took two different approaches. They matched a one to two ratio, and then they again matched a one to four ratio to try to see what they, if they could discern anything from the additional power of adding additional controls. And they extended the range of probabilities that they included in the matching a little bit in order to, to do that. They were matched on baseline health risk data in terms of comorbid conditions, some baseline medical data from that day zero including length of hospital stay up until that point, and then some additional medical data in terms of medications that had been provided to these patients, and specifically whether or not they had been intubated prior to receiving the plasma. Okay, And one of the core findings also is they were matched, as I said, on supplemental oxygen requirements. Okay, so some of the findings of this study. At the end of the study, by May 1st, 12.8% of the plasma recipients had died, and 24 0.4% of the controls had died. So just looking at that, that's you know a, a, a twofold increase in death right there, looking between the plasma group and their control group. Within the, the plasma group, if we look at their first outcome of interest, oxygen requirements at day 14 after the initial dosing of the plasma treatment, at, at that day 14, 17.9% of participants in the plasma group and 28.2% of the propensity score matched controls had worse oxygen requirements at day 14 than they did at baseline. So that's showing a 14% reduction in the odds of needing or of worsening breathing conditions or of needing additional supplemental oxygen two weeks after the plasma treatment among the plasma, the plasma group compared to the matched control group. The survival probability, this is an interesting finding and an important one, was higher among the group that was provided plasma in unadjusted models. So in their one to four matched set, the hazard ratio was 0.39. That was a, a just statistically significant finding with the confidence interval going from 0.15 to 0.99. And in the one to two matched set, the hazard ratio was also less than one, so 0.47, showing a benefit to the plasma group, a dramatic benefit, but this one was not statistically significant with the confidence interval crossing one, okay? In models, they did a series of adjustment, of adjusted models to look at incorporation of different sorts of risk factors in addition to the propensity score matching. So when they adjusted for duration of symptoms prior to admission and exposure to anticoagulation medications, which I will turn to Chris to talk in more detail about, but the authors mention a number of times, I'm myself not entirely clear on the medical rationale, but that anticoagulation medications they were concerned was going to conflict somehow biologically with the plasma treatment. So they mentioned that that was a concern. And so they controlled for whether or not the patient had been provided anticoagulants and also antibiotics. In the one to four uh, matched set, again, the hazard ratio was statistically significant at 0.34. Okay, so reflecting a 66% less likely to die during the study period among people who were provided the plasma. And then again, when they, had, they did another round of models where they adjusted for additional variables, including mechanical ventilation, use of steroids, use of antivirals, um, and IL-6 inhibitors, the hazard ratio was still significant in the one to four matched subset of their pot when they when they did the one to four matching um, again and the hazard ratio here was around the same it was 0 0.31 statistically significant finding reflecting that the plot the, the participants who were provided the plasma um, were 69 percent less likely to die during the study period okay they note that some and they did a series of subgroup analyses which had small ends and the authors note up front that these analyses should be viewed as exploratory because of the small number of cases typically who were 
in these different categories. But some of the subgroup analyses did not have significant findings. They did not note a significant benefit for patients who'd been intubated, specifically comparing patients who were intubated versus not intubated. The significant effects were, were more upstream among patients who had not yet, who had been not intubated. They did not notice significant findings for patients who had presented or experienced symptoms for more than one week before the, they entered the study, before that day zero, and for those who were uh, not receiving these anticoagulation drugs. But again, they note that these were low-powered analyses. One of the other interesting things that the authors did in this study is they looked specifically at the plasma that was provided to the participants to see if the plasma, what was the neutralizing ability of this plasma in, a, in the lab, right? So, so could this plasma, was there a reason to think that this plasma was gonna neutralize the virus? And so they did, they were doing lots of plasma screening at Mount Sinai Hospital at the time, and they selected plasma donors with IgG titers of greater than 1 to 320 that were going to be used in this study, and they confirmed by ELISA assays that, that, that these were the, the appropriate donors, and they were, there were 25 donors that were used for the 39 case patients. They looked at the correlation between the neutralization titers and the donor serum and the total IgG titers within the plasma units, and they successfully found a correlation, leading them to believe that this would make sense in terms of um, that this plasma would have the ability to act as they expected. But what they did not find, which was interesting, they did not notice a correlation between the donor neutralization titers, so in some ways the strength of the antibody response, and outcomes among the patients who had received that plasma. So there didn't seem to be a, a dose response relationship that they observed, mm -hmm. which is something interesting. They also noticed they did not find um, adverse effects with the plasma therapy. It was a small sample, but they said they hypothesized maybe there could be allergic reactions that they did not see any adverse responses that they were going to tag to, to the plasma therapy. Okay, so so a lot going on in this study of 39 people treated with, with this convalescent plasma. I, I do want to make one comment before I turn it over to Chris, which is that you talked about the propensity score matching and you said that, which I will come back to, but you said that they matched cases to controls, which of course is a is a technically a correct statement, but it, it, it does lead one to believe, as I did when I first looked at this, that this would be a case control study, which this was not a case control study. This was actually a, a cohort study in which cases, meaning people who got convalescent plasma, were matched to a comparison group who didn't get convalescent plasma. So not your typical case control study where where the outcome is what you're you're comparing you're, you're comparing uh, those who got the outcome to a matched sample of people who are representative of the study base. So it's it was confusing. I was was going into this thinking it was a case control study when it was not. So Chris, tell us what your thoughts are on this study. Sure. So many things, actually. It's, it's a totally fascinating study, in my opinion. I, I wanted to just comment on what you were saying, though, Matt, because many moons ago in one of our prior episodes, we had a propensity score matching study. And, and I think you summarized it in a rather nice way that in a propensity score, you're, I, I, I apologize if I get this wrong, but you're matching on exposure rather than matching on outcome. And so it has different assumptions in terms of statistical power. Yeah, I mean, so the basic idea of a propensity score is you are trying to predict who gets the exposure. You're not trying to predict it perfectly. You're trying to predict it based on all the things that you think are important confounders. And then you're trying to boil down all that confounding into a single number that you can use to summarize all of the confounding. And then you are essentially matching on one number. So you have one, one, one variable that you're matching on. Yeah, it's a really interesting, it's sort of like, it almost feels like running the logistic regression in reverse to kind of come up with this sort of composite it, picture of the cases and the controls. Yeah, a model of, of the exposure as opposed to the outcome. So I have one other sort of statistical observation, which I, I, I was hoping the two of you would, would also comment on, which is what Jess had described how in one of the analyses, the one to two matches 
didn't achieve statistical significance and the one to four matches did achieve statistical significance and the hazard ratios were, or the odds ratios were, were practically identical. And, and it just seemed to me that this was such a, like a textbook example of the advantage of having more controls, a higher control to case ratio buys you statistical power. And there it was. I was like, wait, we learned about this and, and there it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the only thing I would say on that is just to just to clarify that it really like it's better to think of these as matching exposed to to unexposed, and so you you have a bigger sample size. You're likely to have more outcomes in your unexposed group than you would have in the two to two to one matching when you do the four to one matching. So yeah, you get more more power, which confused me as to why they did all these different you know, two to one and four to one matching. I mean, they provided a rationale, but I have to admit I, I just didn't didn't really think it was necessary. Well, in any case, I thought this was a, a very uh, nice study. You know, I think we all wish we had a, a you know a proper randomized controlled trial, and so we didn't have to have sort of tacking on asterisks, you know, to this study result. But you know, it's a it is sort of an example of what is our our pretest probability that this is going to work, right? And and this approach, convalescent serum, stands on 150 years of of experience, going all the way back to Emil von Behring in Marburg, Germany, in the 18 you know the the end of the uh, the nineteenth century when he was uh, you know intentionally you know inoculating horses with diphtheria toxin at, mm-hmm. you know initially at very 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 low concentrations because otherwise he'd kill the horses mm-hmm. but escalating concentrations over time until these horses became literal factories for for diphtheria anti serum and then he would use that to to treat kids with diphtheria and it it worked extremely well and that whole sort of concept of using you know anti sera as a way of neutralizing different pathogens has carried all the way through the present day. And I would say that, you know, our, our current focus on using monoclonal antibodies for almost anything you can you can imagine, there's so many applications of monoclonal antibodies, is the grandchild of this concept of, of convalescent serum. It's obviously not convalescent serum because the, the approach you, you, you take to make a monoclonal is very different from, from a convalescent serum. But the principle behind it is exactly the same. And then, of course, it's the same theory behind how vaccines work. So all of this makes sense, which is not to say that it's a given that it will work because, as, as Jess noted, it didn't work in the case of Ebola, and so of course there are there are important distinctions between different you know how the host responds to different pathogens and whether the inflammatory response is, is primarily an, an antibody mediated one leading to control of the infection versus a cell mediated one. And so in the case of Ebola, we now know it was mainly a cell mediated immune response, and hence antibodies tend to not be that important. So it's not like all infections you know this will work for, but for those where it is primarily an antibody mediated response, you would expect it should work. Mm-hmm. And it did work, right? And so I, I look at this result and I say, okay, it's it's not the gold standard randomized controlled trial. And yet I'm totally persuaded by mm-hmm. this. This is like, it, 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 it just aligns with so much of what we understand about the biology of this disease and the immunology of this disease and the history of convalescent sera for all sorts of different, you know, ranging from pneumococcal pneumonia to meningitis to diphtheria to tetanus, you have it. There's a, you know, there's, there are so many Examples of precedent for why this this result is believable, and and so if you know I, if I was the FDA and I was saying you know we need a gold standard we need a randomized controlled trial in normal times yes that's true in in you know the setting of a of a public health emergency like this this is pretty persuasive evidence actually so yeah I, so I I share your feelings that there's some good evidence here I will say I, I do have some skepticism around just a couple of things. The first being the the size of the study. I mean, thirty nine patients. I you know I'm never fair enough. Thirty nine thirty nine exposed subjects. So it was more than thirty nine people in the study. You know I, I you know I'm never going to totally be convinced by that, particularly when it's an observational study. If you did a randomized trial in which it was thirty nine and thirty nine, at least I'd feel better about the expectation of of no no confounding. Thirty nine is not enough to guarantee that, but you know that would have been a bit nicer. I thought that the you know the propensity score. I'm I'm a fan of the propensity score approach. I think it's a nice way to to think about creating balanced populations on things that you've measured. I had a little bit of skepticism around the fact that so the way they did this this propensity score matching was they had some data on these people. They then propensity score matched them, and then went and got additional information on them for additional confounders they wanted to control. So you know they they didn't control all the confounding intentionally through the through the propensity score matching they also had the analytic control aspect of it and their analytic control really didn't change the estimates at all now you could say well 
they matched on the propensity score and that really did all of the the heavy lifting. And so there was nothing left over in the additional factors that they thought might be confounders to 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 adjust for. Um, I'm a little skeptical of that. I would have thought that there would still be some residual confounding left over. You know, is it enough to to change my mind? You know, probably not on whether or not there is some effect. I'm just not sure that we know how much of an effect there really is here, given those mm-hmm. two factors together. Jess, mm-hmm. Jess, you have thoughts on on you know quality of the study? Yeah, I, the the one thing that jumped out, one of the things that jumped out to me that the authors mentioned was the concern that the patient group that received the plasma might have benefited from more assertive, I think they were calling it assertive clinical management. So it it really would take a lot of wherewithal among highly stressed providers in an emergency, public health emergency, to to both be aware of ongoing trials and then to to kind of, or ongoing studies, and then to kind of engage their patients. And so that was something that they tried to look at by looking at additional medications that participants were also taking in addition Mm -hmm. to, or in addition to the plasma. Um, They said that there really was no distinction there. They also had a comment where they said they didn't see a difference between providing consent among patients who who were in the the plasma group you know by by different providers which they used as a as a rationale for maybe that the element of assertive management was was not a factor but that was something that made me wonder that made me think as well in part because the 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 hazard ratios were so dramatic mm-hmm. if there was anything else about the clinical management that differed between mm-hmm. these participants and the ones who didn't receive the plasma. If I could follow on to that, you mentioned in your in your your narrative, Jess, that there was this sort of funny result where patients who had received uh, anticoagulation therapy seemed to benefit more than those who, I guess, d- didn't. And and similarly, that there was a there was a, an advantage to people who received the convalescent serum earlier in their course rather than later. And and I think both of those kind of dovetail into into this issue of like the interaction with other therapeutics. And I'll I'll, I'll talk about both of those and you know and and sort of cogitate about why I think think that might be the case. So the second one I think is easier, which is that you know, in terms of treatment early versus treatment late, I, I think what we're starting to understand about the pathophysiology of this disease is that there's, you know, there's an early you know, phase of the disease, which is driven by viral replication in the tissues. And then there's a, a, a late phase, which in fact is seems to be the one that kills people um, more often than not, which is, you know, the, the immunologic and physiologic sequela of that infection, which can persist long after the virus itself, the replication of the virus itself has started to damp down. And so if that's true, then it, it kind of does make sense that treating early with an antiviral agent like antibodies would make a lot of sense. Mm. But if you wait a week or two, it doesn't matter because it's not the virus anymore. It's all the kind of like, you know, the coagulation, the coagulopathies and the, you know, in the, the post- uh, auto the post infection autoimmune syndromes and the hypercoagulable states and that is not really driven by the virus anymore it's driven by the host response to the virus and so that finding again actually kind of comports with our biological model of how this disease works and so i thought that was a strength so similarly the issue about the 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 improved benefit of convalescent plasma in the setting of patients who were receiving anticoagulants. I thought that was very interesting. And it, and, and it struck me that there's two possible explanations. Well, there could be more than two, but I came up with two while pondering this. And one is that convalescent sera itself can be procoagulant. And, and the authors mentioned this in their in their introduction that mm-hmm. you know this is one of the side effects the known side effects of of convalescent sera is that it includes clotting factors and so it can cause people to clot and so therefore you think well perhaps taking anticoagulants would would counter that you know possible side effect and yet the magnitude of this seemed large for that to really you know mm-hmm. explain the effect and I wondered therefore is the maybe the more likely second hypothesis is that this is this is an example of where you know this is a this is an observational study, not a randomized controlled trial, and that the use of anticoagulants is a signal for patients who are doing worse. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and so you know if you're doing well, you're not going to die no matter what you do, and so the convalescent serum is not going to save your life because you weren't going to die, mm-hmm. and it's only the ones who are going to die, and those are who are more likely to die, and those are the ones who are receiving anticoagulants, where the therapy really helps them because suddenly you're looking at that group where death was a significant outcome. I suspect it's more likely the latter. 
and 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 this is sort of you know a reminder that this is not a an experimental design. This is an observational design, and we still run into these funny you know loops of causality in trying to understand these these different uh, cofactors. Yeah. So I, I, what you say there, Chris, makes a lot of sense, and I, I suspect you're you're probably right. I will say though, I'm not at all convinced on the on the data once you start stratifying it. I mean, if you got, I've got skepticism already when you've got 39 you know, exposed subjects when you start trying to stratify that. I, you know, to me that I, I just tuned out when we got to that section. You know, sort of. Interesting, but not at all convincing. All right. Anyone? So it's, it's like the, uh, the, the, what is it? The, what was that name of that Milan Kundera book? The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Uh, lightness lightness of, of Beings. Being. So we have the, the, the unbearable <laughs> flukiness of small data. Okay. I feel like we, have we talked about the unbearable lightness of being before? I feel like well, we it did. has to do with hats and, yeah. and other things. No, we talked about this because I, I told you the story about how I saw that movie in London and the movie was over and I got up and left and it was later when I was talking to somebody about it that I found out that actually I left in the intermission. The movie was so long. They had an intermission. Oh, no. Yeah. Did you realize? Uh, I didn't realize at the time, but I found out later when I realized I missed the, I, and I didn't get it. It seemed to end at a weird point. Yeah. You're like that. They left a lot of threads. They, unanswered they there. really did. <laughs> what sort of novel, novel technique is that? All right. All right. Let's move on. But before we do this, just one one thing I wanted to say is the last word here. There's a phrase in here that I absolutely loved. So I mentioned Ooh. they did this propensity score matching and then they additionally adjusted for factors that they went and collected data on. And they referred to those estimates. They say, when we aggressively adjusted <laughs> for additional yeah. covariance. What's that mean? I like the, like that's, that's a, that's right. adjusting with, with boxing gloves on. Adjusting <laughs> with, with, with extreme prejudice, I think. Yeah, they're going to use the latest version of SAS. No yeah. fooling around. <laughs> I know, no holds barred. All right, so let's move on to our second segment where we're going to talk about a, a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is not a, a data specific paper. This is a hypothesis type paper, which I, I appreciated. And I'd heard a bit about this, so I was excited to to read this one. Paper was entitled Facial Masking for COVID-19 Potential for Variolation as We Await a Vaccine by Monica Gandhi and, and George Rutherford. And I thought this was a really interesting one. They basically, you know, talked about some of the data around, you know, countries where masking is regularly used and places where masks are not used. So really ecologic data, talking about the, the differences in the COVID-19 outbreaks. And then they, they talk about recent data from Boston showed that infections decreased in healthcare workers after universal masking was implemented. And so they bring up a potential explanation for what's going on, an explanation that if were if it were borne out would be a real benefit towards masking use. And the idea is variolation. Essentially the idea that if you are exposed to a lower dose of COVID-19, uh, of SARS-CoV-2, that your body is going to be able to mount an immune response that it might not be able to when you are exposed to a very large dose. And therefore, you may end up, you know, essentially by, you know, being exposed to a, a very, very small amount, you may be able to mount an effective immune response such that you never really get sick, but you would develop antibodies. And the idea being that maybe what's going on is that masks, while they're not fully protecting people from the virus, are reducing the, the dose that people are exposed to when they come into contact with somebody who is uh, shedding the virus. And that has the potential for benefits to creating a sort of semi or possibly complete immunity, which is a really interesting hypothesis, but seems to me is at this point just a hypothesis. So Chris, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? Do you find it as interesting as I do? Yeah, I, I, I did. And, and, and I have to say, I, I have been thinking about this uh, concept that they, they describe in their article for quite some time myself, I, as I imagine many uh, ID doctors. So, you know, we're, we're looking for sort of a grand unification theory to explain COVID-19 disease. And it's looking like there are three vectors in that relationship. One is like the dose of the virus that you're exposed to. The second is probably the route of the virus that you're exposed to. And the third is the host status. And so in, in all cases, there the, the, this sort of like, how does the host 
manage the virus is, is I think, the final common pathway into understanding the outcome of an exposure. And so we know, for example, that little children seem to have a lower propensity to become infected and certainly a far lower tendency to become clinically sick if they are infected. So there's, you know, it's the lower risk of infection, which is, you know, a relatively modest effect and a significant reduction in the intensity of disease, which is a much more significant effect. And then, of course, children have this propensity to develop, you know, rarely this multi-system inflammatory Kawasaki's-like disease afterwards. Okay. So... All of these probably reflect those, you know, the the intensity of the exposure and also the status of the host's innate immune system. So a young child or young children in general are probably going to have far more robust innate immune function than, say, an elderly person would, which means that they have a higher sort of force field, if you will, that mm. the virus has to jump over in order in order to, to become, you know, rooted and, and lead to a systemic infection. Because if the macrophages and the dendritic cells can intercept all the virus and sop it up and turn it into peptides and show it off to the T cells and the B cells, then you don't get infection. What you get is immunity. Mm. And I think this is what Gandhi and Rutherford are, are arguing for, that a low dose exposure can actually be beneficial. And this is for sure true, because one of the golden rules of, of, of infectious diseases is that more often than not, the size of the dose of the pathogen you receive matters a huge amount in terms of your likelihood of getting sick. Mm-hmm. And one of the best examples, sort of the best described and explained examples of that is in how exposure to HIV virus at different inoculum can lead to HIV infection or to a uh, sort of a relatively immunizing response. And so, you know, when a, like, you know, virus is trapped under the foreskin after sex, for example, in a man, the viral particles are absorbed across the epithelium and encounter these, these antigen-presenting cells called dendritic cells, Langerhans cells. And these are kind of like the, the giant sort of spiderweb cells of the immune system whose job it is to find pathogens and pull them in and digest them and turn them into peptides and then, you know, spritz out cascades of cytokines to the T cells and the B cells saying, come hither, me lads, see what I have found. <laughs> this interesting thing, right? And so they do, at, at low concentrations, when a virus hits like the, the, the outside of a dendritic cell, that is to say the side that's facing the mucosal surface, at a low inoculum of HIV, the dendritic cells you know, grab these things up by endocytosis and present them to lysosomes and they grind them up and turn them into peptides. And, and that's that. And then the T cells are informed. But at high inocula of HIV, that system, that transport system becomes overwhelmed. And the endosomes make a, a passage from, from top to bottom of the dendritic cell and actually are systematically exported to the other side of the dendritic cell and released again into the, into the surrounding fluids. Now, the dendritic cell has now been signaling through cytokines, come hither me lads, T cells, B cells, who are now attracted to dendritic cells and are now systematically being exposed to live-kicking HIV. And that is bad. And so you can see at high inocula, what you have is a systematic pass-off to this, the cells that are most vulnerable to HIV. And at a low inoculum, you have the completely opposite effect. And so it, it's not a huge leap of faith to imagine that this might be the same thing that's going on here in terms of you know inhaling small concentrations of virus versus inhaling great big whopping concentrations of virus and who gets sick. And it's not really a surprise to think that those who get highly exposed will go on to get pneumonia. I, I, I totally buy that, 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 that premise. The one thing I quibbled with is, is that I don't think that the variolation metaphor that they use is, is at all apt. Mm. Because when we're talking about variolation, we're not really talking about reducing the size of the exposure. We're talking about changing the route of the exposure. Right. Instead of inhaling smallpox viruses, which is why we call it variolation, we in, we scratch it into the skin, into the, the vicinity of those same self-dendritic cells, who then grind up the smallpox virus and pass it off to the T cells and the B cells and lead to an immunizing event. Whereas if you inhale it, whoa, that's that's a totally different thing than you get viral pneumonia and disseminated smallpox disease and one in three chances you're a goner. Mm. So I think their, their metaphor is wrong, even though the rest of their essay I totally bought. Okay. So you buy the concept, maybe not the metaphor. Jess, what was your what was your reaction to this one? Yeah, this was a really interesting paper. I agree with Chris that I was a little initially thrown off by the metaphor, but then I I, I definitely understand 
what they were getting at. I mean, I, I come to, from my professional training, I come to an understanding of masks through training in occupational health, epidemiology, and industrial hygiene, where we discuss masks and all kinds of PPE ad nauseum, which, you know, PPE not being a term that, that I use in public discourse until fairly recently. Yeah. But so the, you know, the idea of masks traditionally is that they are primarily a barrier when all other controls have failed. And so when every other attempt you have had as a collective workplace, for example, or in this context, as a collective society, when your efforts to reduce the exposure have not been successful, the last thing you can do is to protect the individual. And you, you slap a mask on someone, you put a face shield on them, you know, physicians are wearing gloves in the context of treating patients with Ebola, they're wearing big suits. You know, you're protecting the end recipient because efforts to control the environment are unsuccessful. And so I was thinking about this and also in a political context where, you know, we were talking briefly about the vice presidential debate or other, you know, in terms of uptake of a vaccine and the politicization of a COVID vaccine. And is this an intervention that could potentially work in the event that 40% of Americans <laughs> refuse to take an eventual vaccine? Mm -hmm. What are other, and so I've been, this, this made me think about in a highly politicized context with the pandemic right now, are there interventions that may imperfectly work? You know, this is not a perfect there will still be people who wear a mask who are exposed to a small inoculum who get quite sick, right? This is not going to be a, you right. know, in the same place in a, in a work environment, there's, you know, people who are wearing a mask and are still are inhaling asbestos at, at rates and at quantities that damage their lungs, for example. So, but is this something that comes in between a, you know, acceptance of a vaccine and doing nothing? Mm. Um, and also mask wearing is highly politicized, as we see even in Massachusetts and even, you know, especially in different parts of the country. And so that was what this that was kind of where this article led me was thinking about this occupational health framework of hierarchy of controls. If you can't control the environment, you try to protect the end user. And then if the end user is is not willing necessarily to or doesn't trust intervention what is something in between? And maybe that's a mask or mm -hmm. maybe a mask is even unacceptable. I, I, I think that's a, that's a really great way to think about it. I, I would suspect, however, that anyone who is not willing to get a vaccine is probably also in the anti-mask camp. But I agree with your, <laughs> I agree with your, your general point. Right, um, right. You, know, you all have kind of made the points that I wanted to make. The only one that I will add is, you know, Chris, take your points completely and you totally understand the science in a way that I just, you know, I don't. But this strikes me as something that makes sense theoretically, but lots of things make sense to me theoretically mm -hmm. and then don't necessarily bear out. So it's an interesting hypothesis to me. I'd want to see some actual data to back this up before I'm willing to, to say I think this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, it, it's a reminder to us that, you know, we are – you know, we, we, we act as if COVID-19 exposure is, is a binary is a binary phenomenon, uh, you know, and I suppose on one level it is, you know, if you're going down to the level of one particle versus zero particles of virus in the air, but that's not really the problem that mm -hmm. we're, we're facing. We're, we're always dealing with, with a relative degree of exposure. And we know that, you know, even for an N95 mask, you know, an N95 mask is not a N100% mask. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, it, it lets some particles through and a cloth mask also lets some particles through. So it's like Jess says, it's, it's, it's not reducing your exposure necessarily to zero. It's reducing the dose of your exposure on a relative scale. Yep. Some air gets in through the sides, you know, your nose peaks over the top. Uh, similarly, we talk about a, a, an exposure as being 15 minutes within six foot of, of an individual where well, that's, you know, that's a dichotomous disservice to humanity. Mm -hmm. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you left at nine minutes and 59 seconds, you've got nothing to worry about. I mean, that's, that is absolutely stupid. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't make any sense biologically. And so, of course, we're looking at a, at a matter of, of a graded set of exposures. And, and, and therefore, you know, I think this is a really powerful concept. Yep. 
And Dichotomania is real, my friend. It is it real. Is, it is. Wait a minute. I didn't. I was there. I left one minute in advance. <laughs> you, can, you know, come on. Come all on, right. people. Well, let's, let's use our brains. Here. All right. So I think we're all intrigued. One maybe want to see some data to back it up. But this one, this one was a really interesting one. Sure was. Right, so let's let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And I'm going to go first because mine's a short one and it relates to uh, SARS-CoV-2. I don't know if you all saw this article by Vasconelos and colleagues from from Brazil. It was a preprint that they put out looking at SARS-CoV-2, you know, the work around SARS-CoV-2. You know, there's been so much work around these epidemic modeling uh, exercises that have been you know, going on, particularly in the early days when we were trying to predict what the epidemic curve was going to look like for SARS-CoV-2. And then, you know, suddenly there was all of this research being done and not all of it was really necessarily being vetted. It was it was all being dumped dumped isn't the right word, but it was being put into the preprint literature and, you know, varying degrees of quality, not peer reviewed. It was then getting picked up in the media. And many of us were fretting about the fact that there was this information that was getting out into the world that really hadn't totally been vetted, particularly around these, you know, these epidemic models. So what these researchers did, which I just thought was so I guess meta is the term, is they did a modeling and epidemic growth study of preprints on COVID-19 and mm. SARS-CoV-2. So they, they <laughs> modeled the epidemic of SARS-CoV-2. Now they did it in, I mean, I you know, obviously- It's like Google hits, right? Exactly. It's I mean, this is tongue in cheek in a sense, but it they there's some really heavy math behind it that they they put together. Mm. And then they've got this model that fits this this giant rise in SARS-CoV-2 preprint work that starts coming out and fits this sort of beautiful epidemic curve over Please tell time. me there's a lag function on this, at least for a couple of weeks. Well, so I, what I will say is that the, the one piece of good news, if I read this correct, the one piece of good news seems to be that while there was exponential growth initially, it there is looking like we may be getting to herd immunity on SARS-CoV-2 preprints. And so things do appear to be coming back down. But I just I thought that was pretty fun. That is cool. Chris, what do you got for us? <laughs> All right. So I also was was thinking about COVID-19 epidemiology. There, there have been a lot of analyses and discussions about the, the so-called excess mortality associated with COVID-19. You know, we're trying to figure out how many people died because of this, this horrible pandemic. And the, 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 the total is not just the number of individuals who died with COVID-19, you know, pneumonia, for example, but all the sort of, you know, indirect deaths due to COVID-19, mm-hmm. like, you know, people with diabetes and hypertension who have a stroke two months later or, you know, something like that. So they wouldn't necessarily go, you know, into the, the category of officially having died of COVID-19. But if you looked at the distribution of, of COVID-19 mortality, there's also a, a peak that's superimposed on that of officially non-COVID-19 mortality, which is presumably these indirect consequences. Mm-hmm. And I, I was trying to understand you know, what are the main drivers of that? And, you know, was trolling the internet and trying to understand this. And most of the papers I, I found focused on the obvious sort of large major categories of death, like cardiovascular death and things like that, or kidney failure. And, and, and I, didn't find that all very interesting because it was not very surprising. So I keep kept digging and eventually stumbled across two sort of relatively smaller causes of death, one very small cause of death influenced by the COVID-19 pandemic that I thought were surprising in different ways. And so the first one was lightning strike deaths. Mm. Lightning strike deaths are, would you guess, higher or lower? Lower. Since this is, yes, way lower, down by mm. about a half. Uh, presumably because people are indoors. And, and specifically, they're not on the golf course, or they weren't for they're, a while. That's right. They're not in, in places where you would get struck by lightning. I mean, you know, there have been 16 so far this year. Usually there's around 25 to 30. Uh, and so it's a it's a good year for not getting hit by lightning. So there's, you know, there's a silver lining there, I suppose, to COVID-19, that we're all hiding in our houses and uh-huh. not getting struck by lightning. So I thought that was interesting. I thought that and was this, super cool. Yeah. yeah. The other one that I thought was interesting, which is a little bit less cool because it's more depressing, oh boy. is motor vehicle accidents, mm. deaths due to motor vehicle accidents. I would so assume would you guys, those up or down. I would assume those went down too. Yeah, that's going to be my assumption. And so you are you are right and you are wrong. You are right because the numbers, the absolute numbers of deaths are down. Yes, mm-hmm. that is true. 
you are wrong because the the number of deaths per miles driven is way up. Oh, interesting. So there has been a drop because people are not in their cars, but when they're in their cars, they're driving like lunatics. Okay, I have, I have, yeah. I have a question. It, it, do you think that that is because there are fewer cars on the road and therefore in urban areas people are driving faster? I think so, because traffic jams protect you from dying of car crashes. Yeah. You can't, I've seen you that can't in get my killed at 10 miles an hour. Yeah. But, you know, I just driving to, you know, I drive to BU once a week. And every time on the highway, I feel terrified because there's like lunatics passing me on the mass bike at 100 miles an hour on both sides, just zipping by. Chris. Because there's nothing to stop you. Chris, I have apologized to you several times. (laughs) (laughs) So the official uh, official statistic in terms of fatality rates per 100 million vehicle miles traveled, the VWT, the VMT, excuse me. Last year, this time, 2019, was 1.08 in the second quarter. And that's a number that has been largely constant for about a decade. And this year was 1.42. That's So not like a little bit up, way up. Wow. Even though the total number of deaths is a little bit down from last year. Fascinating. I've also wondered if there's, you know, I have I have just had the same observational experiences where in my suburban neighborhood, especially early in the pandemic, not so much anymore, there'd be no cars and then there'd be someone like gunning it down a suburban street at like 60 or 70 miles an hour. And I have, in addition to driving fast when there are not people on the road, I've wondered too if there's a change in risk-taking behaviors in the context of being quarantined and isolated from others and, you know, kids not going to school, people not going to work, especially early in the pandemic. If, if they're, you know, if a kind of a corollary is that people have to seek out experiences in other ways. And some people do that by driving too fast mm-hmm. and, and that that would be borne out also in other, looking at other kinds of risk-taking outcomes that relate to, to risk-taking. And so I have, I have definitely wondered that how it affects yeah, the sort of risk-taking behavior. In, the, in this same report, which comes from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, so this is the Department of Transportation, basically, they did comment that, that alcohol and drug use as a cofactor in, 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 in uh, car crash deaths is also way up. Mm-hmm. So really I think that, that is exactly what you're saying, right? It, it's driving insane and drunk um, yeah. without traffic jams as yep. that buffer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Jess, what do you got for us? Oh, gee. Well, I have something a little bit lighter, but Good. also related also related to COVID. Oh. So a question for our, all went COVID. our, our the, the ladies in the audience. Have you ever been out and about and you realize you're far from home and you forget your mask? And what are you going to do? So have no fear. Someone has developed. They have now there's a patent, a bra that can be transformed in a few easy clicks oh into a fully functional, two fully functional face masks. So you and your friend or you and your partner, you whip off your brassiere and all of a sudden you have two face masks that can be used to protect you, as we were just discussing, um, or lead to your own variolation, whatever it is. This, this is. this is a product. This actually, this, this product recently won, um, you know, the Ig Nobel Awards mm-hmm. that come out, <laughs> yeah. you know, around the time of the Nobel Prizes. And so this was one of the top winners. It's called the EB Bra. They have a range in price from $40 to $60. And a, a patented product, and and there's a step-by-step procedure in terms of how you might transition your bra into a fully functional cloth mask in case you are just absolutely stuck, and that's what you got to do. So I thought that was very clever, served a need. Thank you very much. Um, her name is Elena Bodner, who developed this product, and that, more power to her. That doesn't, doesn't help the guys out there quite so much. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. So much. I Not forget, so much, I forget right? my mask all the time, and so that's a really, really helpful uh Helpful little invention for yeah. I, I doesn't help right. me though. You know, kind of leading leading the way in multi-purpose uh, thinking, clothing they, accessories. Can they do this with other with other um, male undergarments? But I, I think I'm not going to go there. <laughs> yeah, I think we should leave that one for now. All right, so that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you could tweet us at. Pop Health EX or me at, at Prop Matt Fox or Chris at ID.Gill. Jess, I don't think you, you told us if you had a, a Twitter yet. 
I, I, I'm, I'm not in the Twitterverse. All right. I, I admit, one day, one day, one day, I'm aspiring to be like the two of you. I'll make it there one day. Well, we I don't wanna... tweet at all, so there's no aspiring at all. Good point. Well, we want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and being a cool cat and having the coolest cat wandering around in the background of his Zoom. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and hope you'll download our next episode. <laughs>